Hey everybody, welcome to this episode of The Suspense is Killing Me. I am thrilled to have Miss Stephanie Ellis with me today. Stephanie, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm getting a bit cold at the moment, as always, in August in the UK. It's not the warmest of places. Not like Europe, which is on fire, which hopefully that'll end soon. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm good, thank you. That, that blows my mind. The weather in, in the UK caught me off guard. I was in I was there. I mean, it was many years ago, but it was like September and I wasn't sure what to expect. And of course, right. <laughs> Americans, we have our yeah, we have our perception of like, oh, it's, you know, it's 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 always rainy and cloudy and it's going to be cool. OK, great. So I showed up, absolutely fell in love with the weather because I'm originally went, grew up in the northeast of America in New York City area um, up until up up until halfway through my childhood. And then we moved down here to Virginia, which is more southern. And uh, so we've, we've always had a, all four seasons in our lives. We've never lived far enough south where we don't have that. So mm. my favorite time of year is always from like September 1st all the way through to February 1st-ish. And then you can keep February and March. <laughs> <laughs> we, um, we used to have clear seasons. Those always seem to be a dividing line, but they seem to have shifted now. Mm. So it's August, which is summer for us but it feels very much like autumn and it's just wow. rained and rained but then again I'm in Wales which is uh, well I'm a few miles from the English border and it's just a very wet country anyway I used to live here and worked here some years back it's where I met my husband and then we moved away down to Southampton but we've come back wow. <laughs> the weather's back with us well I was in Colchester and... well that's down south yeah yeah so it wasn't quite as uh, sporty as where you're at now. <laughs> the old Roman town of Colchester. Yeah. yeah, it was really cool to be surrounded by that much history. I mean, I, I had it. I was in the service when I went over there, and I spent two months there in a in a school um, as an engineer. And when I was, in, I mean, I, because I was in the service, I had traveled a lot around that time period, but I had never been to the UK, and um, I was surprised by how your proximity to hit to deep history is like, it's like within arm's reach everywhere. Um, we don't have that in America. I was just going to say, you said proximity to deep history in Wrexham. Well, that's where I live. It's mines underneath us. So it is pretty much deep history, oh, literally. Yeah. Literally, yeah. <laughs> if I vanish, I've gone down a hole somewhere. <laughs> we'll keep that in mind. People will reflect on this interview and say, we know where to find her. We'll know where to start looking. Um, <laughs> So yeah, so I was uh, very happy to 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 see that you had released um, a, a new book, and we will talk about mm -hmm. the woodcutter, um, which I am in the throes of reading right now, having a great time. Oh, good! Uh, really trying to immerse myself in the in the lines of folk horror. So this has been fun, um, mm -hmm. and I'm interested to see if you if you categorize it as folk horror or not. Um, and uh, we'll we'll talk about that in a little bit. But as mm -hmm. always, true to form here on the show, we are all about connecting the reader with the writer and connecting other writers with other writers. So I love to talk about where, how you got where you're, where you're at now, like what inspired you to write, what's your life like outside of writing. So prepare yourself for that little bit of a personal dive. But um, <laughs> if we looked at, if we look at Stephanie Ellis today and we talked to her today, what's life like for you outside of writing? Uh, well, it's, it's changed in the past couple of years, a few years back, I'd say, well, just after COVID, well, 
the COVID was a turning point. I was working in a secondary school as a librarian and a teaching assistant, scribbling away at home in my own time and getting slowly getting some work out in terms of books. Short stories been out. But the whole COVID issue and where I was working, it just came to a head a bit. And we'd always wanted to come back to Wales to be nearer to my husband's parents, well, to his mum and to my parents over in Shropshire. So I said that, you know, I agreed that we'd move, which is something my husband had always wanted to do to get back to Wales, away from England, and run back over the border. So I agreed to that. And he said he'd work, you know, to support us and I could work full-time as a writer so that's what I've done so we shifted we sold the house got rid of the mortgage which we were lucky to do it's it's not easy to do over here but it's only because we'd lived down south that we were able to release some money to do this and it's made it a lot easier if we were back down there with the current cost of living crisis I would be working overtime he would be working overtime it would be tough and it's not I'm not going to say it's easy easy now I've got we've got three adult kids living with us at home as well because they've all just finished uni well about a year or so ago and so they're at their starting point but they're here so we've still got very much a family involved Mm -hmm. But I write, I've got a little corner of the bedroom, which is where my desk and the bookcases are down south. I didn't have didn't have that. I think one of the questions was, where do you write? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I'm at my desk now. But back then it was a corner of the sofa in the living room with everybody else walking around me. And I just have to shut them out. I had nowhere <laughs> else to go, really. So you you get used to being able to adapt in, in all sorts of different places. So I, I packed in. The, the day job, as it were, became a full-time writer. And then, like all good writers, you get all this time and you procrastinate. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, I didn't do as much as I should have done. I am getting into a routine, but then also it was harder to make a living as well. So I've started doing some work for Bridget's Gate Press and I do copy editing. I do occasionally do a full content edit. I do quite a bit of proofreading. I even bought a full copy of the Chicago manual uh, of you know style I've got that tome under my desk um what else would I do? I do formatting as same proofreading so I do quite a bit of that and then I fit in my work around it but I also go to the gym I've just gone back to that because I had surgery this year so I was banned but I gotta do that walking around here it's lovely countryside my husband loves the mountains and mm. If he wants to do a real climb, he's on his own. But we'll okay. I'll occasionally go with him. But there's woods and lovely countryside to walk across. So it's it's quite varied. Oh wow! Yeah, we we live in the woods here, and I didn't think I would like that at first. You know, it always sounded fun, but practically, I was like, I have to be able to get to things because I grew up around pretty urban areas. And I was always worried that like, oh, I got to drive 20 minutes to get to anything. Now you can't pull me out of here. Like, I love it. Like we live, we live in the woods and it's great. And the walks, uh, you feel, I feel more isolated, mm. um, but I feel like that's kind of good for me, right? Like it's- yeah. That's that's a bit like my childhood because I grew up in a pub in the middle of nowhere. It's a country pub in Shropshire. Um, my primary school that I went to was five miles one way. And my secondary school was 10 miles another way. So it's buses and walking along lanes on my own in the, you know, early twilight or whatever. Mm. But it was very isolated. The pub was busy. You would have 
so many people that came over from Wolverhampton and Birmingham and they would come over for the weekend and then on the quieter days it'd just be the farmers and they'd come down with their tractors and their trailers. The worst time is walking walking home from school along the lanes is when it's the time of year and they do the muck spreading in the fields because the tractors will have the muck spreader on the back and they'll bring it to the car parks and I'll be walking up the lanes where they've left this little trail behind them and it, oh, it stinks. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was a very... I don't know, when you're younger, you get bored after a while. When I entered the teens, you want to get away and your parents are working all the time. They worked every day of the year, even Christmas Day. We'd have half a day on Christmas Day and it would close and you just want to get away. But now I'm older, we want to go back to the countryside. So although we're in Wrexham at the moment, we are going to hopefully shift a little bit more not to somewhere that's completely remote because you've got, when you get old, you need to get to the doctor, you need to get to the dentist, you need to make sure there's a bus service when your body falls apart, you know. <laughs> you <can't... laughs> we're learning with our own parents as to what they've gone through or are going through as to what we're going to go through and what we don't want our kids to have to do for us. So mm. that's the next stage. So don't want to depress anyone. Don't think about the stage yet. <laughs> so not, not, quite, not quite there yet, keeping active and everything but it's something to think about but we stayed in an airbnb last week and it was a lovely big house there were four bedrooms big sitting room there was a study which looked at the so it being used for music big conservatory and me and my husband we looked at each other we thought wow this would have been perfect for the kids growing up but now for us even though we got them with us at the minute when we eventually end up on our own, if we are, I mean, kids can stay with us if they want, it would be too big. So all those dreams, you have to be practical when you get older. If I had a chauffeur and a housekeeper and a lot of money, <laughs> I'd do it. Is that your Christmas list? Well, just anyone want to send those items to? Yeah, <laughs> to or a, lot, a winning lottery ticket. That'd be great. Yeah, Everybody would love one of those. <laughs> I caught that one today on the radio. Someone won... Uh. Was it a billionaire over in your country? Yes. I just, oh. My wife is like, we have to play. And I'm like, because I was an engineer. I'm like, the numbers don't work right. <laughs> You're yelling about the math in my head. She's yeah. like, yeah, whatever, dude. It's a billion dollars. Don't Yeah, think, yeah. Don't think you it. can Buy dream. Some. We can yeah. all dream. Buy your ticket. <laughs> um, so, so you talked a little bit about where you grew up and what it was like with your, your family, what your family environment was like um did you did you find your love for suspenseful fiction during that time period during your childhood or like when did you fall in love with with suspenseful fiction I think the suspense side came more from what I saw on tv with the programs um the crime dramas that I watched the films that I watched nothing in particular I I read from a very early age and I read a lot of books <laughs> when I was about nine. I was reading my mum's Georgette Heyer books, which is um, historical romance set during the Georgian era, <laughs> which I hate it now. So, And I read Jean Plady, which is historical fiction. And I started Dickens when I was around 10. And so a dark edge seemed to come into it. So although there was an element of suspense, that's that wasn't really the thing for me. It was this um, story of... A slight dark edge but a story of people and what what they're going through and maybe a bit of mystery involved mm -hmm. the idea of pacing and everything like that 
I didn't really catch on to that until, as I say, you start watching films and then I would get by the books, the crime dramas and everything like that. To, de- to this day, I mean, I read all sorts, but if I'm getting a little bit fed up and I still want to read, but I have to go and buy a, a, a thriller, a crime book. And I went through a Scandi noir phase and I watch a lot of that on, on television as well. If it's in a foreign language, subtitles and it's, Danish or Swedish or Finnish and it's crime I love it it's just the way it's drawn out all those little secrets and things in there so the reading came at a very young age this idea of suspense and that came a lot later wow and and then mixing obviously I write a lot of gothic type I mean some people would say it's gothic horror Mm -hmm. um I think it's a little bit more broad than that. There's some there's some folk horror elements to it as well, but it's it's primarily gothic. Um, yeah, you know, it's a haunted house. <laughs> so, I love haunted houses. Yeah, uh, that's my current that's my current series that I'm writing. Uh, my current my current whip, but I didn't read those types of stories when I was a kid. I think mm. my my biggest fascination with with suspenseful fiction was it started with reading like war like books about war and just the the wild kind of ebb and flow of of that type of environment it always had me on the edge of my seat and then mm. and then i discovered horror and i discovered yeah. stephen king and and you know peter straub and i was like oh this is great you know and, yeah. and so i've always felt like whether it's horror or mystery or crime or whatever there's this element of you're kind of on the edge of time mm. I actually wrote, write, write a Substack page titled Time Stand Still mm-hmm. uh, because I feel like that's kind of those moments. And regardless of which genre it is, as long as it's suspenseful fiction, I feel like we kind of get trapped in this little yeah. niche section of time where everything else just kind of stops. Um, and I, I feel like as a young child, it was easier for me to find that in, in different ways mm-hmm. than it is now, obviously, because of, of our lack of reality immersion and all the things. <laughs> but um to take that and then become a writer uh i think is like a whole nother step um what what motivated you to start writing rather than just consuming uh that started when i was working as a librarian um as i said i was working in a secondary school which is a senior school over here 11 to 16 year olds so i was a teaching assistant and a librarian before that i'd been a junior librarian in my kids school I wasn't following them around they kept saying I was but I wasn't it's just a (laughs) part-time job before that I had been a technical author a senior software author for a technical publications company for several years so I'd done a lot of technical writing and a lot of programming um, time out for kids and then as they got older I started to I read the books in the library where I was working and I was thinking, yeah, I I could do this, but I didn't really do anything about it because they were young. I would write verse. I call it verse rather than poetry because they were funny rhymes. Um, I got some in some local papers, but that I regarded as a hobby. I didn't regard that as part of my writing career then, although I do now because that is another strand of my writing. 
but, but yeah, poetry was venting at the time. I, I've got a little, what I would call a diary. It's all in verse. It's about characters that I used to work with in an office. Uh, I was in this little corner when I was a software author. There was I was on this corner table with some other authors. I was software. There are a couple of engineering authors there as well. And we were good at our jobs. I was the only female there and I had to prove myself all the time. But I was good at my job. And they were good at theirs. And whenever anything went wrong with anyone else, we would have to pick up their work or talk to the customer and do a little bit of firefighting. And they would tend to get the pay rises or the breaks or the perks. And we got fed up with it. So I started writing little verses about these other people. And I'd share them with the table. We'd have a chuckle about it. If I got caught, I'd have probably got sacked. But I still got it somewhere. But I did, I did enjoy it. It was an outlet. They always say poetry is a protest. Well, that was my protest. And it was just quite a funny thing to do. But that that was an aside. And then as I said, when the kids were a bit older, I did try a short story course. Mm. I got writing magazine, got this short story writing course. And I tried it. And they said, yes, you can write, but you're not necessarily going to be a writer for the women's magazines or anything like that. And I was thinking, where do I go? What? What do I do? You know, I wanted to write now because I'd discovered an enjoyment in it. I'd read the books in the kids library, in the senior school library. They do. We would put in some adult literature as well because you're trying to expand, um, you know, books available to kids in a in a controlled way or certain amounts of control. So you, you know, to open their minds a bit. And um, I looked in the magazine and there was a call for a potato anthology, a horror anthology centred on potatoes. And it was a small press called, I think it was Nightwatch. And its editor was Teresa Derwin, who is still quite active in the horror community. Mm. And uh, I wrote a story called Death is Not a Potato. And it, it was set in Leningrad during the siege of Leningrad during oh. the Second World War. And I still like the story. I still not got it published anywhere. Uh, but she said it wasn't really horror. It was dark, but not horror, horror. But that that particular little press, they started doing other calls. And she said, send something in. So I did. And I started getting published back then. Mm. And once you start writing, I don't know what it is, but as a reader, when I read, I need to read. There might be a time when I, during the day, and I feel this really physical urge to just sit down with a book. It's become a part of me, like read, like eating and drinking. I have to read. Mm. And writing has become a bit like that as well. Yes, I procrastinate like everybody else, but there will come a point where you it, you are forced, your brain just tells you to sit down and start writing. So it's it's become a part of my life as much as anything else. I don't know when I'm going to stop. I don't think I ever will now, unless my hands give up with arthritis or something else elderly related, <laughs> or my mind goes, but that might have gone yet, but who knows. You, you but, might yeah. start dictating at that point. I was actually thinking about that this day because I was at, I was I was at the gym this morning and when I'm on the cross trainer that's where ideas will often come to me mm -hmm. if I'm working on something the cross trainer is perfect because I'm not counting reps or anything else and a scene I'm working on will be there and then it will just get filled in and that happened this morning so the one I'm working on I now know what going to happen in that particular chapter and it's also a couple of ideas for two more chapters as, as well it's a folk horror and it was a scene with the holly and the oak um trees but it's going to be a, a, 
I don't know, a reenactment of the war between them. It's, there's this old myth about the Holly King and the Oak King fighting each other um, for the seasons. And as I think it's as summer goes, the, Hol the Oak King declines and the Holly King takes over. Something like that. I was going to look it up today, but I haven't done that. So people will say, she doesn't know what she's talking about. <laughs> well, I probably don't know right now, but I've got books on the shelf to go and look it up. But But that came into my head today. But I don't try to think about those things when I'm on the weights because then I'm counting. And then yeah. as soon as another idea comes in, I can't remember where I was. So then I add on 10 more and 10 more. Yeah, as a, as a former personal trainer, I advise to, to concentrate on the reps when you're on weights. Yeah. <laughs> I was a trainer for 15 years. Part of it was because of my role in the military was uh, fitness yeah. related for a couple of years at a training center um, where we'd have to drag people out of their beds way too early in the morning and make them run Ooh. in very undesirable yeah. conditions um that was just part of the job so yeah. but i had so much fun terrorizing people that i decided to do it part-time because the money was great um <laughs> but uh yeah so so the reason i talk about the dictation part is i it wouldn't be the same motivator but when i started writing nonfiction, my mentor honoré quarter uh had said hey pomodoros might be the thing for you like a 20 minute writing sprint because I was having so much difficulty finding the time to, to write. And now as a, as a person who's written fiction and nonfiction, I know that my writing style for each is different yeah. and I need a different kind of system to, to make each of those things happen. But what moved my nonfiction forward was a 20 minute drive home every day from my son's school where I could just set my, my phone on record and I could, just teach on this topic that was in the book. And that would create a transcript that I could then edit into, into my chapter content. And it even saved me to the point where there were times when I'd fall behind on production, but I had all my recordings done. So my editor would be like, Hey, why don't you just give me your transcripts and I'll, I'll clean them up for you. Because I was writing at that point, I was dictating very closely to how I was writing uh, because I would dictate, then clean and then have the finished product. And my mind started to get programmed to speak like I was going to be writing, which was not the way it started out. So dictating actually saved my production for nonfiction work. Yeah, I was I was thinking as like in the gym on the way to the changing rooms afterwards to shower, I thought, right, I could say something into my phone now before I forget it. But there were other people in there. And I thought, well, if I start to, you know, saying what was on my mind i'm gonna get some very strange <laughs> yeah. So, yeah so i left it <laughs> <laughs> especially especially when you're writing some of the some of the stuff we write right so it's, it's a little different yeah. than my nonfiction stuff people be sitting yeah. next to me going why is he talking about course prices or like launching some type of product it's way different mm -hmm. um so anyways I, I i do find that i it's nice to have that little tool in my toolbox mm -hmm. should i need it but i haven't had to use it for fiction and honestly it would be great for note note capture yeah. on fiction, right? So like like you said, if you had that moment of realization and I can't use my hands to type it into my phone's notes or whatever, I could always dictate it. Um, but there, I could not imagine trying to dictate a story because hmm. I write fiction so much differently than I speak. Like my writing is so different. Now, I guess I could say plotting. I could do dictation for plotting purposes, yeah. but yeah, not the actual don't plot. <laughs> Are you, are you a pantser all the way? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm terrible. I'm a, I'm a bit of a mix. I, I find that yeah, you say that though, but some of us plotter types, we think we're plotting 
we like to feel good about our plotting but then once we start writing we become more pantsers than mm -hmm. plotters some some people actually i just saw an article recently it's like which of these eight author types are you and it was basically like a scale from mm -hmm. extreme plotter to extreme uh pantser and it was like a mix in between i'm like do we have to do we have to codify everything we don't have to codify everything but um yeah well so okay so talk a little bit about that so like uh when you have an idea since you are a pantser do you just I mean, how much of an idea do you have to have before you're convinced to sit down and start writing? It's usually a character. Um, mm. I just get an idea of someone stood somewhere. They might not even be doing anything, but, I'll, you know, if it's a folk horror, when I started writing the the Five Turns of the Wheel, it actually developed from a short story. Mm. But I wanted these particular characters in the um Tommy, Betty and Fiddler, they're, they're, it's like a mama's troop in, in the rural areas in the UK. You've got these little acting groups that go round mm. the villages and perform. It may be religious, it may be folkloric. Um, they're not Morris dancers. <laughs> I should give them a Morris dance. But uh, it, it's that sort of vibe. And I knew I wanted them to be grotesque in a way. So I had this vision of this one Tommy walking into the village and it was that walking down the lane to my parents pub although uh, they weren't in a village but it was that setup and I just sat there behind his eyes and just started looking starts walking and then I just go with them and the story evolves quite often what I write as a first chapter I'll, I'll write a bit more a couple of chapters more then I'll write something I think well actually this should go to the front so then I shift it and the other chapters move along a bit and then I might write more and then, oh no, this bit goes to the front. So that goes to the front and then it moves along. And then I might write something that's later on because it's a scene I really want to write, but I haven't worked out how to get there yet. So I put that in. And then in the end, I'm sort of weaving my way through all these chapters and linking them and there'll be gaps here and there. And I've often called it dot to dot. And that's what my writing can be like. They keep getting shunted along but in a way, I think as that structure appears, it does become a little bit like plotting. I mean, I don't know actually how it's going to end at all until about three quarters of the way through. That used to worry me because I thought I'm just writing these things that these people are doing. What's going to happen? Although they're, they're keeping busy. But how's it going to end? And I, I used to think, well, I don't know how it's going to end. I don't, people say you've got to know where you're coming from and where you're going to. And I never know where I'm going to. I'm a bit like that in real life, actually. But um, <laughs> <laughs> rely on my kids and their phones. But yeah, <laughs> lose my train of thought there. But yeah, so I never knew where I was getting to. But then about three quarters of the way through or two thirds, there is this point and I suddenly realise ah, that's going to happen to them. And then I'm heading that way. So that gives it a little bit of a, an outline, if you like. So mm. from pantsing with a tiddly, tiddly bit of planning to just get to that end bit. But yeah, it, it just appears. I don't sit and work things out. I did once right at the beginning when I was thinking, oh, I could write a book. And I got a little notebook and I'd read up on these things that people do. So I'd got character descriptions and chapter outlines and it didn't work the characters just didn't do what I wanted them to so that is in a drawer somewhere and I might dig it out another day and just apply my current go anywhere yeah. <laughs> style to it and, and try that again because I like the idea because that was 
that's a sort of cozy murder mystery type thing that I would love to write. Um, so that idea, I think, is still quite a good idea. And I will dig it out when I've got a bit of time. But at the minute, I'm writing another folk horror, which doesn't quite know where it's going yet. But a bit of it was filled in this morning in the gym. <laughs> are you allowed to mention, uh, does it have a title yet? Or are you allowed to talk about that? Or is it? Uh, it's the third book in the Five Turns of the Wheel okay. series. So you've got Five Turns of the Wheel, Reborn. And then this one, it was going to be set in Yule because I wanted something that was going to be Christmassy so people could read it when it's snowing outside and they could yeah. curl up with this folk horror. And I haven't really got a title for it, but I've, I'm currently calling it Mother's Night, which might still be the title because it leads up to the old sort of pagan festival of Mother's Night, mm. which is Modronit or something, in some other language. It's got this other other name i was saying on another podcast that i do give people names and place names and event names in my books that i can't pronounce <laughs> <laughs> does that become a game for you it's like i can pronounce uh, well, not, that not it's really. gotta go <laughs> i have got a book somewhere on old english i love old english um anglo-saxon poetry because mm -hmm. there's this when you read them they it's a very lyrical quality to right. it it isn't rhyming it's using the alliteration and I just love that. And that got me into the prose edda, the poetic edders and all the early, early poetry. And I was looking and they often had the, lang the, the initial language next to it. And I started reading some of these things and finding, especially in the old English and the Anglo-Saxon, how some of our words came from those. So I started looking up words like, like blood and see what it was in old English. And so then I would find names for characters that might reflect something that's going on or, or a village or, or what have you. But I'd looked for something which if you translated it from Old English or Anglo-Saxon, it would have this particular meaning. Oh. So I, I think, I'd yeah, I've done it in most of them. But again, I can't necessarily pronounce them. I think in Reborn, I used um, the horned god. He Mother Nature is the overall goddess in these books, in that particular series. And she rules the roost. In Reborn, the horned god comes back. He's her husband, effectively, but he's the old Celtic god, his other name. And this is the one I can't pronounce. I kept saying it was Sanunos. Other people say Canunos. Oh. I don't know. C-E-R-N-N-U-N-O-S. I can spell it. I can't pronounce it. But that's his name because I thought it was a good idea. So he's, he's come back in that one. But yeah, why not give, I use names that have meaning and try and work out how to pronounce them later. And then if people say you got it wrong, you can just say, well, I, I like it this way. It's a name, which is pronounce it how you like. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're the. Yeah. You don't be precious. Get, yeah. You get to, you get to play with that a little bit. Right. <laughs> um, I, I love the, I love your, your discussion about plotting and pantsing and, and I've, I've, I've tried cause I'm, a, I'm, you know, I was a, an engineer for 25 years and I'm very much like, I don't know whether I started this way or I just ended up this way, but I'm a, I have a, a very well wrought, like trod linear logical kind of thought line in my head. And it accelerates my ability to fill the story. And if I know, at least where I want to go. And it's not like I need it to finish the story, right? You could just hand me a theme and I could run with it. Mm -hmm. Or you could just hand me like, like you said, you could hand me a, an image and I could go, I got it, let's go. And I'll take it where I want it to go and it'll be fun. 
Um, but I have almost never actually finished a story how I plotted it, which is a, a full tribute to you have to be as a writer, I feel like no matter what I plot, I can't tell the story. No, like when I start writing, if it takes me somewhere, and it's better. Why well, fight it? Like, just go with it. Like it's, you have to be flexible in the military. We have a term. It says, uh, no, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. And I, I fully embrace that in my writing, like my plot and the thing I've written, it might be my initial plan, but it'll never survive first contact with my writing experience. And as it goes, I have to kind of go, all right, am I pacing myself? Is the story progressing too fast, too slow? Like I've got a whole lot of stuff I got to fill into this thing that I've plotted that I haven't even touched yet. And I've only got X number of chapters to do it. I either have to adjust what I'm doing or the story is not going to have all this content. And at that point I have to kind of adjust this novella I'm writing right now. I'm unwilling to sacrifice how it ends because it's so good how it ends, but the road getting there has changed considerably. And it doesn't reflect the original motivation for the story whatsoever anymore. So I feel I, like yeah. I can't really represent plotters like fully because they're probably jumping up and down screaming right now that I'm breaking all the plotter rules. <laughs> that, that doesn't matter. I'd say that shows that your story is working, your characters and everything else has come to life. And if that happens, then then that shows that the story is what it should be. Right. You let the story be what it is. Don't worry about the the outlines or anything else. I remember in Five Turns of the Wheel, I was I was writing it and it was coming to the end. There's me saying I know what the ending's going to be, and I did know what the ending was going to be, but I changed it because I had those characters, those three characters I mentioned. They'd come back for this last night of ritual, and they were rampaging around the countryside. Mm tearing up the the crops destroying the animals the livestock and the people in the village were hiding and they, they were coming down to this village and this is a little bit of a, a spoiler they there were the there was this couple there who got trying to put an end to them and it, it was all converging you know you got this real pace and they were just running amok and I was sat there with a big grin on my face writing away <laughs> and then I was thinking oh my god if these two do what they are going to do that's the end of those three and I want to write them again you know write about them again so I actually swerved and changed the ending and it oh. took a little bit of doing but uh, another ending appeared but I can remember there was that one moment and I thought I've built this world I want to write in it again and I want those three in there and because sometimes I do like my bad guys better than the good guys. <laughs> so you fun. saved your own characters from yourself. Yes, I, yes, I did from a very <laughs> sticky end, actually. <laughs> That's really cool. Um, and I, I feel like your reader will will feel that the story is more natural when that happens, because, you know, you're going somewhere on, on a, for a reason. I feel like mm -hmm. that story takes kind of kind of takes over. Um, did that happen with the woodcutter? Well, I can't ask that question yet. I have to ask you to talk about the woodcutter first. Let me just back myself up. Um, tell So the woodcutter to me, like, I, first of all, I love the cover. I was like, oh, that's so cool. And your, your books have very clean yet. You can tell you really focus on your cover art. Like it's really representative. And 
I really like that it's it's got a modern, clean feel to it. But when I saw the woodcutters, I was like, ooh, that's so good. <laughs> that's I will give a shout out to Elizabeth Leggett there. She's done a lot of covers for Bridget's Gate Press, who produced the books. Um, so they've done five turns of the wheel. She's she's done all of mine, uh, you know, so she's a very good cover artist and she got that she just nailed that one when i saw that i thought yeah i like that it's got an yeah. axe it's yeah. good yeah, yeah there's no mistaking the where we're going with this yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's good and i and at first i didn't catch the scene behind yeah it. so that it, the more i looked at it the more depth it had it gave me an experience to kind of explore the cover a little bit and i'm i'm just a little fanboy for good cover art so <laughs> I really enjoyed that. But can you talk a little bit about the story? What is what is the woodcutter about? Oh, it's about an old legend about a woodcutter, would you believe, and grandma. It actually grew from a short story I wrote a few years back. Uh, I wanted to retell Little Red Riding Hood, but I wanted to do it without Little Red Riding Hood. <laughs> Although there is something in there that, has that element as well as woodcutter and grandma there is the cloak element which you'll you'll find out as you you read about it and so i had this story about how the woodcutter and grandma continue to live they they were these immortal creatures effectively effectively they were sort of demonic in a way and then i thought well why not set it in, you know, turn it into a long story and explore that legend a bit more and then see if you can bring it to life. And there were a few strands in the book that I really liked because one thing I love is history. Mm -hmm. And I look at a lot of old um, 17th century pamphlets online and you see the woodcuts, not, not linked to the woodcuts, but you see the, the pictures of these very strange stories that people believed in at that time. And I thought I could imagine woodcutter and grandma that their story actually being in a pamphlet and then why not do a recreation there's this modern thing on it i hate reality tv shows right, i don't too. really watch them <laughs> but i thought why not try a recreation recreation of an old legend and there was a program on um channel four over in the uk some years back by a man called darren brown he hypnotizes people or manipulates them so they think certain things but this series had this one man believing that there'd been a zombie apocalypse and he was running around convinced he was the last person alive i i can only remember a bit of it but i thought he he got this person believing that that person thought they you know this was happening so i thought why not try and bring the legend back and get people believing it but whether it's real or not you find out as you go through because i've got two very unreliable narrators in there um <laughs> which is another new thing for me i've never done it before and i was writing their story and they were setting up this, this tale of the woodcutter's apprentice. So as I say, you've got grandma, she was thought to be a witch and she lived in the woods and the woodcutter was supposed to be her lover back in the day. And she was very beautiful once and he was young and all that, but not anymore. Mm. For her to keep alive, for her to live, she needed a certain number of sacrifices. And that's where the cloak what happens to Red Riding Hood comes in. Uh, so I'm not going to talk about her. But for him, <laughs> he he was allowed to live forever, 
but he he did something wrong. I can't remember what it is now. There's something in the book <laughs> that he would still remain immortal, but he would need a body every so often to continue living. And so for that purpose, he needed an apprentice. And the vi- he, he went round, you know, the village refused to offer up anybody. So he went round, killed the cattle, killed all sorts. And so the villagers, they put six of their sons up on these sort of scarecrow um, stands up in the field and he could choose one of them. And there is an, an early incidence of that in, in the story, which is a bit gruesome. It's quite sad, actually. Happy ending in a way, but that's that's another story. <laughs> but, but then the recreation is to actually have six um, lads, one of them isn't a lad who's a bit older, be these woodcutters apprentices and they're waiting for the woodcutter to come out of the woods so they're recreating legend they've got um, they've got the news people there, it's on camera, you've got the, the kids in the village doing their YouTube videos and everything else and they're blogging about it and it's this idea of what is real, you know there's this one main character who's gone back to the village um, Alex Eads He's gone back to find his family, but he's being drawn to the woods and he's not quite sure what's real. And then as you go through, he starts to doubt himself all the time. And the other character, who's the estate owner, Oliver Hayward, who sets up the um, reality show, he's got doubts as well because he was there as a young child and he's come back. So there's a whole lot of hidden memories that come out. They're not sure what was real at the time, what's real now. And I did have to get a friend to read through afterwards to make sure that she she could she wasn't confused. Because when I was writing it, I was thinking, I'm going to confuse people with this. I'm confused. I had to keep reading it through to make sure that it flowed properly you know, as it went on. At some points, I did think I should explain things more. And then I thought, no. We're seeing this through the eyes of someone who's just gone back into the village. We are only going to see what he sees and what he mm-hmm. thinks. Well, the two two viewpoints, actually. So it's going through their eyes. So I deliberately kept a lot of things out that I could have explained. Um, I wasn't going to give hints. I thought I'll take the reader with me. If it works, it works for them. If it doesn't. But I enjoyed writing it. So that's that's effectively the woodcutter. I wanted it to be folk horror. And so it's got the legend, it's got the setting, it's got the village of, um, you've got God Be Gone Woods, which is the, the forest, then you've got the little hatchet village. I love naming them, by the way, in the Axe Valley. Because that, that's another thing. If you watch Cozy Murder Mysteries on telly, I love Midsummer Murders. I don't know whether you get it in the US at all. But they would have really quirky little names. And I love that element. And I thought I'd like to bring that into a horror setting. So I've got names that you might find around the UK. They do have strange names, strange village names. So I thought, yeah, that's that's OK. I'll put that in as, as well. So I had the folk horror element, this little cosy element of the names. Well, I call it cosy. And then I wanted it to be realistic in a way bringing in the modern day. So whether it's a psychological story, a psychological horror or a folk horror, you've got to make your mind up as you go through and as you find out various things, you you might chop and change your mind a lot as you go through. And then as I say, the ending, I'm not going to say what it is because that surprised even me when it got to that point. It got a bit <laughs> later. It got a bit later than usual. But when it wow. happened, I thought, oh yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> nice. Very cool. See, now I now I have to, I'm, I'm in the midst of the book now. And I would yeah. say that um, this, you do need to make sure you're paying attention to the first few chapters very closely. Yeah. The 
the the storyline is really kind of laid out. I love the opening, by the way. You know, the whole stormy night and oh yeah, yeah. I didn't yeah. start. It was a dark and stormy night. <laughs> I was <laughs> <Yeah>. tempted. <laughs> Were you? Te- yeah, I was going to say you did a good job of avoiding that um, <laughs> specifically, but but the the incident, I. I want I don't again I don't want to spoil it but I thought it was a really gripping way to start the story I was like oh wow like we're we're in we're rolling um but if you just read the first chapter you would really not be anywhere close to the story right it it kind of sets this question mark like why is this happening what is going on here and it primes your brain to go I I want I definitely want to obviously read on and see what what's going on here but I, I thought after I read that first chapter or two, like this could have gone in so many other different directions mm-hmm. and you take it down a path that's really cool. So thanks for setting the tone in the beginning. Uh, I, I have a hard time when I'm not engaged by a book fairly mm-hmm. early on. Not a problem with the woodcutter. I was immediately engaged and intrigued. I had questions. The minute I have questions, I have to figure out. I'm like, all right, all right, what's going on here? You know, and I and I wanted to get rolling, but I think I was probably fifteen or twenty percent of the way through the story before I really like had my feet planted with characters. It's like, mm-hmm. all right, I know what's going on here. We've got because there are, you know, you you do a good job of pulling pulling a lot of character into the story. It's not mm-hmm. just one to three people on an adventure. It it really is. There's a lot of moving pieces. Right? I was going to say, if you're going to write something rural and you're in a village or anything like that it's always going to be more than one character because everybody knows everybody else's business and they'll be in and out you know so you can't have them separate they can they're going to be there right right but but to your credit (laughs) i have i have been lost in stories before where there's all, like you said, you have to have all these characters, but then I, I'm trying to remember which Anne Rice book it was. I read an Anne Rice series. It was the it was the witches. The depth that she went into with each character and like the past plot line interactions and all the stuff. I got lost. I got lost in the characters. I'm like, I don't know where the actual story is anymore. Um, especially yeah. if you like don't have the I want to say the luxury of time of sitting down and just consuming a book. I guess if yeah. I just sat down and read through the first half of one of those books of, of hers, I would have been okay. <laughs> but yeah. I found myself halfway through going, all right, I got to start over. I don't know where I am anymore. Um, you do you do a, a very good job of avoiding that trap yeah, with the I multi-character think, approach. Yeah, I think when I, I introduced the characters, I made sure that they all had a purpose for being there. I mean, one or two were a little bit of color um, to the scene to make it feel more like a place, you know. Right. But most of them, they had an actual reason for being there. Um, they It might not appear for a little while, but it's so that you know who these people are. Excellent. Yeah, it's really cool. So I'm, now I'm, hes- right, I'm going to ask this question because I ask every author this question about the books we discuss. But I am spoiling it for myself just a little bit. <laughs> Because oh, one of the things I love to do with the story is to try and identify the theme without knowing. Yeah. Um, but with that being said, um, is there a theme that you aspired to convey in the book? Like, is there something that you started with or did the theme kind of reveal itself afterward? And what is that? I I think the theme revealed itself afterwards. Um, I never start, I never do any writing with the intention of having a theme or an idea within it. 
because uh, sometimes if I do that, I think it would come across as heavy handed or preachy in a way. So if ideas crop up that allow me to explore something, then I, I will include them. I would think with this one, um, having considered your question, <laughs> which you you sent to me, I would say that it's very much a matter of trust, mm. but it's trust in your it's trust in what you know trust in your family and those who are supposed to be close to you and trust in yourself and I think that's been the theme of who can you rely on um there's relationships in there that you think might be pretty solid but turn out to be shaky there's relationships that were disrupted initially that the main character's father you you think that he because his mother told him you know they were having nothing to do with him he's kept away all his life but there would be issues there but then when you get right to the end you find that what you know where that trust is it, it's just a, a journey of finding out who you are and it is very much in his case um but that would be spoilers if I say who he is so I'm not going to say it but it, it's it's this whole idea of not being quite sure of what's around you, what you can trust, what you can trust with your own eyes or with your own your own heart. So I think that's that's the main thing within the woodcutter. Excellent. I love I love that you uh, pull the pull the the trust theme because as a um, let's see how do I put this <laughs> in the I middle. Would, of I would I was just gonna say I would throw in the idea of manipulation as well in there. There's the whole concept of how people are manipulated or allow themselves to be manipulated or the person who's doing the manipulating, you know, how far you can go. And I think that's quite relevant today with with social media, um, sure. with everything we see. We are being told things, shown things. When I was growing up, none of this existed. You know, I we had a little black and white telly. I didn't get colour telly until yeah. I was... I think we we're about 17 and then a video recorder a few years later, mm. the phones, just uh, computers. No, but you could trust what you saw and everyone said, oh, a picture can be believed. And then you started seeing things on telly and everywhere else. Oh, yeah, because it's there. It's being filmed. It's real. But we can't believe that now either because of the deep fakes and the AI and everything else. So I think this idea of manipulation within it is also a good one to explore. Oh, I'd that's... like to do that elsewhere as well, actually. Wow, yeah. And you can unpack those two words um, and relate them, obviously. Um, when, when, we would, uh, when we would teach leadership in the service, uh, one of the things that I told the junior members, especially our junior officers, was that trust was non-negotiable. Like you cannot sacrifice trust with the crew um, or with your people at any, I mean, at any cost, you must maintain trust, even if it's to, to tell them or give them a situation that they don't want. Mm -hmm. You, you can't play the good guy just, just to play the good guy and sacrifice trust because sometimes mm -hmm. it's better to break the bad news and be truthful about it and, and handle it professionally and in mm -hmm. a way that they respect than it is to try and sugarcoat it and avoid the inevitable. And then when it yeah. all comes crashing down, they don't trust you anymore. And then once you lose that, you basically lose the command. So we, we would, we would talk about that a bit, but that realization in a, in a leadership environment actually mm -hmm. caused me to understand the relationship with, it's just a human thing. 
Mm. right? Trust is one of the single most important factors of human relations and there's no way around it. So as a project manager, I had to teach that to project management students. I still teach mm. at the university. Mm. Um, and I always tell them, you know, you have to establish trust and you have to, you have to focus on quality, all these things, all that to say, we always viewed, uh, manipulation as a bad thing until I got into mm. working with certain very savvy people that were like, no, manipulation can be a good thing because if, if you're not using, if you're not lying to people and I would be like, really, we'd have these fascinating conversations about positive mm. manipulation versus negative manipulation. Mm. But I, I had such a hang up on say, the word. Yeah. Isn't one person's positive, another person's negative, you know, that's it's a so whole nother. It's so crazy. And I, I mean, again, you could, you could unpack a dissertation on that, but mm. <laughs> excuse me but uh i saw it in action once in such a masterful way that i realized it is possible to be both truthful trustworthy and to guide a scenario a situation and an entire group of people in the right direction mm -hmm. and to do it in a way that you're handling the situation with respect and you're not being nefarious you're not being untruthful you're just being very selective in how you present information so that you can control the energy and the optimism and i was like okay you are manipulating us but it's for our, everyone's collective good like there's an amount of trust involved in that that is almost mm -hmm. hard to wrap your head around but that's mm -hmm. exactly what the service demands of you and I, it, like i just had this moment of realization where I can almost never experience that anywhere else in life, mm. maybe except for in marriage <laughs> or in like parenting. I, yeah, I was going to say when I worked with the teens at the um, at the secondary school, I worked with a lot of challenging kids. They had learning difficulties and that was often masked by their behavior. And I really enjoyed working with them and they they would open up and talk about all sorts of things with me. And they would know that I was on their side. But if they stepped out of line and did something wrong or I caught them doing something wrong, I made sure that they knew that I would still report that and they would have to face the consequences. And I used to hate doing it because sometimes you'd, you'd grown this really good bond with them and they'd look at you, but you got their respect because they knew that if there was something going on that they needed your support with, if they'd been blamed for something they hadn't done, then I would stand up for them. I would fight their corner and I would try and do that. So they knew that I was being honest with them and they could trust me. So I think as long as you show that you're doing the right thing by and being open with them about it, that, that, that built that trust and respect. Wow. That's great. And you, and that's all, it's all in the woodcutter guys. <laughs> now I'm, I'm actually more, yeah, I'm actually like really looking forward to finishing this story, even more so than I already was. And I was already really looking forward yeah. to it. <laughs> That's great. Um, well, so that was a little bit of a deep conversation. I don't know if that maybe answers this question, but like, what did you learn about yourself and your writing while while you were writing the book? Uh, I think that it's told me that I will write another folk horror, that I love that environment, that turning of the rural area the, the countryside that I know into something dark is part of me 
it's I think it's like it's just because it's nostalgia in a way for a time of my life when I was eight to 17 we lived at the cider house which was the pub that is the five turns and um I just remember those dark evenings, the silence of the pub and everything else. And I don't know what it is. They say you start thinking about these things when you get older. And I have been thinking about that part of my life a lot. So it's brought it back to me. And it means that folk horror is part of me because of that childhood. And I will keep writing that. It's That one was a test for me. As I say, I was playing with unreliable narrators and I'd probably like to do it again. And I think it's shown that if you you challenge yourself to do something slightly different, you can do it. I remember doing um, an online writing course with Mona Lawrence. It was within the HWA at the time, although he's doing them separately now. And we did this course and I'm not supposed to talk about what happens in... (laughs) <laughs> okay. on, the, on the writing course but let's there were certain stories you, you'd have to write and I'll say body horror was one that you'd have to write and I don't do body horror but I wrote it and they would come up with other scenarios that I don't write but I did it so I like to challenge myself a little bit but I won't be writing any erotic horror <laughs> I know we were talking about that before <laughs> <laughs> I will never write a romance either but I will try and write all sorts of things because I do want to try different things I don't want to be a writer who's constrained by a particular label or a particular genre it will probably always be dark or have an element of darkness unless I get my cozy murder mystery written and it becomes a bestseller and I can have (laughs) the big house and the housekeeper and the chauffeur but um that probably won't happen (laughs) but I I do like to as I say to try to try different things and to be known as a storyteller Mm. and I think to be known as a good storyteller is the best compliment anyone could give you and I've I've read a lot of good storytellers (laughs) and I want to be I want to be like want to be like that but would it would it uh there's something about there's something about being what you want to be before you feel like you've arrived there right yeah i think yeah. your i read reviews of your books before we met and there are a lot <laughs> of people you. that would argue with you that you are a fantastic storyteller oh thank you thank you I, I seem to i seem to exist in a little bubble where a few people have found me <laughs> i'd like a lot more people to find me <laughs> well, well we'll see what we can do we can try our try our best to help you because this will be there forever and, and we'll just Yay. keep pointing people back to remember that episode with stephanie ellis yeah, when um, I waffled a lot about all sorts of things oh, about no. manipulation and <laughs> well, that's that's what I'm here to do is to draw all that attention away from you. So if people have any hate toward the anything in the show, it'll be the constant exposure to my ridiculousness from episode. Yeah, I, I, I will. I will say I I don't worry as much anymore when I was right. younger. Oh God, I shouldn't keep saying that. When you grow up, you you have all these anxieties and you worry about what everybody else thinks, and that carries on through your twenties. And, you know, in your 30s even, but having had the kids and all sorts of things happen to me, you know, over the over time, there comes a point you suddenly start to feel calm about things, even though I still dread podcasts and things like that and have an attack of the nerves. I'll, I'll have a go at them. But I think, yeah, I might look an idiot, but so what you know there will be that initial embarrassment or or whatever else but I can just park it a little bit there's a confidence that comes 
as you're older that you know you think well what else can can happen so right. if anyone's really worrying now when they're young just don't worry about it just get on and do what you want to you know have a go and if you fall flat on your face a lot of people won't notice because as there's one thing, when you're at school you think everybody's aware of what you're doing you know you've got all your peers around you and if you do something wrong you think that everyone else has seen working in a school and seeing how the kids are yes some will notice others but most are in their own little bubbles again so they don't mm. those ideas that you've grown up with and you start to feel so self-conscious you didn't need to because half the time nobody noticed yeah. it's just just anxieties and things but i do feel sorry for people growing up today kids growing up today with everything with the, with the social media and having to be one thing and appearing one way i remember we had a discussion in class it's an english class and it was about um fake news i think it was and how you were presented and it's this whole idea of um airbrushing images so you look perfect on mm. on the on the screen and we thought that they would be against that these were they were about 13 14 year olds and we thought they would want to be able to show what they were really like but they said no they wanted to be like those images and i thought that was quite scary that they preferred those images to themselves and it's it's such a shame because they were fine as they are and quite often when you see the images online of what is supposed to be these ideals everybody looks the same they're all identikit and half the time they look awful with all these <laughs> fake eyelashes and things but this is just me being the old fuddy-duddy but there we go <laughs> i, I mean, digress <laughs> don't you kind of feel that that bleeds into all of the different marketing efforts you see in all the different products i mean there's even it, it's it's in books right it's like mm. i was having a conversation with with one of my um with a cut with a cover designer the other day who i'm working with and they asked me, what do you not want on your book? And I didn't know exactly how to say, I don't want what everyone else has right now, mm. right? Like I don't want it, yeah. I want it to stand out in a good way, but I also need it to be immediately recognizable and marketable for the genre mm. because people have to be able to look at that and go, oh, yeah. that's familiar territory, but they have to do it in a way where they go, ooh, look at that, that's different, right? Like, Yeah, I noticed that the, there's a trend for the Gothic genre to have those fancy borders and squiggly things around them. So, you know, right, that's Gothic. And then whenever I'm on Twitter or whatever else, and it has these feeds of these books, once upon a time, it would be the female body. Now it's the headless male with a six pack and you right, okay, you know exactly what that's gonna be. <laughs> Yeah, these guys are just <laughs> running around everywhere. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I actually, I keep thinking, how do they get away with it? Because women fought for so long against sexist ideas. And now they, we are just as guilty, you know, of those sort of things. It shouldn't be. Yeah. It's just, I don't know, there's, there's no balance. But yeah, nice to be different from the crowd. But you're talking about image. And there's one thing I have a bit of a hand up about is because I'm, what, 59, 60 next year. And whenever I look on the little profile pics, you see all the women are much younger and they're all made up or filtered or whatever. And I don't do anything like that. So I'm very much a grey haired little old lady on, on there. And I keep wondering, where are the other older women like me are they hiding do they think they can't write because they don't look the part we're not glamorous 
Um, yet you see the male writers who might be the same age or older and they're silver foxes and yeah, they can look just as they are. But women, they're sort of, they think they have to start filtering themselves or presenting themselves in a different way. I think the one, I've got one picture that I did put a very light filter on once and that was because I go through regular bouts of insomnia and I needed a picture for some thing or other on on media and I had very red eyes and I thought if that goes out I'm going to look like the devil sort of glaring so I did put a very light filter on increase red eye yes yes <laughs> I, I decreased it yeah so I just want other women out there who are older like me or older still just to feel that they should be comfortable to show their faces wrinkles and all you know it's like on tv the old women news readers they're all sacked over here you don't see them they're suddenly push aside mm. and then the males carry on on the younger women come in as well and i think it's it's quite sad that um that everything is geared towards this little core of time that's regarded as youth you know your, your mm. 20s late teens 20s and we live so long now and i think it's sad that we regard that as the best that there was there should be more you should be free to explore and enjoy and express yourself through all years and to be celebrated for it I mean as you get older people just don't want to think about it but the one thing that will happen to every single person and every youngster who pokes fun an old person they will be old one day it will be them falling over them not being able to count their money or or whatever you know so it's it's, it's quite sad that everything is geared up towards that one slot in time when it's this whole range and that's something I've been dwelling on lately just because I'm getting on a bit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in my mid forties, so I'm kind of stuck in the middle. And it's, um, it's funny because this is, you know, my dad likes to, to observe my aging and, um, uh, we, we were, we're a very close family, a typical loud Italian family, like, you know, and, uh, but we're very close. And my dad will say, how's your back? How are your knees? You know? And I say, dad, you know what? Um, when I think about the best times of my life, this is the best time of my life, like the things that are happening to me. Um, and mentally, I'm better now than I ever was, but physically, I don't feel as good as I used to. So it's like, well, pick your poison. Do you want to feel physically better or everything else? And like, for me, I'll take the everything else, right? Like, <laughs> I'll sacrifice the back for yeah the kids and the house and the and the mm. great marriage of 20 years plus and the yeah. the ability to actually by the way finally got to do what i've always wanted to do for a living because yeah. all those years it takes to earn enough income and and mm. and have a career to get me to that point yeah. it's almost like i had to spend my youth getting my freedom so that as as i was older i could do the things i really wanted to do when mm. i was young and now yeah. I have the freedom to do that. So I'm just, I'm absolutely loving this. And I feel like it'll be a blessing if I can do this for the many years ahead that I hope I have, right? So. Yeah, that's that's the way I feel. I just want to, I enjoy what I'm doing, but sometimes it, it doesn't feel like work. Mm -hmm. And I keep thinking I should be doing something else. So I'll go and, I don't know, paint, a, I painted the garden wall the other day, I did that, but. It, because it was so much a side part of my life you know I would be doing as much as I could in the evenings when I had the time mm. that it was still regarded as 
well it wasn't paying the bills I mean I am earning now from say from the other work that's involved in writing and I do get some royalties and some good short story payouts that's that's been a lot um, of help but it still doesn't feel like work and I feel guilty about that <laughs> there's, there's always one something isn't there you go your whole life and you get things just right but there's some little payback whether it's this feeling of guilt that well, it's not real work, but it is because I want to write and a book, you know, the books you see on shelves, it's it's a business. And yeah. your movies and your TV shows, they come from books and scripts. So it is it is actually a career, but it's it's a hard one. You need a very thick skin to be able to to keep going that, you know, the number of times I've been rejected. I don't know how often you've been rejected, but I've been so many times and it's 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 tough. Yeah, but uh, I'll keep well, at it. I I cut my chops uh, right away, jumping fully in in nonfiction first when it came to like producing something that I was mm. going to put out to the world. And one of the reasons I did that was I wanted to kind of get the experience of self publishing in nonfiction so that I could understand better what that situation would be like once I started doing it with fiction. Mm. Um, one because I didn't want to have to experiment while I was emotionally involved. Right, because with my fiction, yeah. I feel more emotionally involved than it's your baby. <laughs> you're right within my nonfiction, and that that one right there was my first nonfiction book that I published. Um, I saw how much work, like going through the process of publishing that book, how much work there was to write it, then go through the process of editing and proofreading and design and everything, mm -hmm. and then through like that last two months before the book came out, which I mean, I was very caught off guard by the amount of work it actually took. So I'm very sensitive now when I hear people say, well, is that real work? Actually, it was great to show my family how much work was involved in publishing those books because um, we come from a very blue collar, trade intensive type of family. And if you'd have told me 20, 30 years ago that my parents would be interested in the process of writing and publishing and like understanding how much work goes into that, it would have been like, yeah, we can talk about that after we run all this wire or mm -hmm. fix this engine or go build this house. Or like, it was always yeah. like you had to be a second thing because mm -hmm. art wasn't as important as the other things. Mm -hmm. But when you take art and you make a business with art, you have both the art and the business. Mm -hmm. And there is a tremendous amount of work in putting them together. And so I feel yeah. like for authors, um, if you're serious about being an author that sells their books, it's very much a real work, right? It's very oh, much it a is. job. Yeah. The the amount of work that you have to do when it comes, whether it's the marketing. So, I mean, I have self-published some stuff. Um, there were some anthologies earlier on I did with the Infernal Clock. And then there's poetry uh, collections I've done recently. There was Foundlings with Cindy O'Quinn and Lilith Rising with Shane Keane. Um, my background as a tech author taught me a lot of things in terms of software and publishing that side of thing although the packages I use then are prehistoric so I had to relearn but it, I knew what to do or where to go so I and doing the work for Bridget's Gate I know how much is involved with creating a paperback when I first started doing it I would simply you know create a pdf from the word document for the paperback but you don't get the alignment at the bottom and you don't do anything so now I'm doing the desktop publishing with the tracking so you sort of squish things a little bit to try and get everything look neat and tidy and that can take hours and my family sees that they see 
the amount of work that is physically involved or, you know, well, physically I'm sat at my desk, but sure. the time that it takes to create the products. And so your ebooks, your PDFs and everything else. And then it's preparation for an interview or filling in a written interview or doing a reading or doing a podcast. And that amount of time means that the actual writing becomes minuscule. I mean, I came up with those ideas for the chapters in my new book today on the, the cross trainer and I'm holding them just about in here. I haven't written them down yet. Yeah. <laughs> so later on today, I'll be sat downstairs, probably on a corner of the sofa again, and scribbling it into an outline that I can type up tomorrow so I don't forget. But the the actual writing part has gone. And then there's the finances as well. You know, you've got to do your accounts. You've got to get the downloads from Amazon or whatever. If you've got books up there to split between authors, if there's anything that's come in, which doesn't happen very often depending on what it is mm -hmm. but it, it's all these little things that you don't think about but um right. it's been a learning process I will say um I've, I'm a great one for freebies so I learned a lot using free software and I tell people which ones they can use because half the time writers have got no budget for anything so that they were saying well what well, if you want to do desktop publishing I was using Scribus or I think it's called Scribus. I've probably pronounced it wrong, but that's free. And I was using that until recently, but it can be a little bit unstable and a little bit unreliable occasionally. So I've just bought Affinity Publisher for, I think it was on offer for 50 quid, just under that. And that does as much as Adobe, which mm. you have to subscribe to. So I don't use that. I use Affinity Publisher for images, for creating covers, um, I use uh, GIMP, which is the graphic manipulating software, unfortunate name. But yeah, that's free. So I use that. I go to Pixabay and Unsplash for images. Again, you know, and videos as well. And those are all free. So I've I've learned to go to where the free stuff is and to cut my teeth, you know, before I move on a little bit and maybe buy a package or something. So if there's anything people want to do and they're looking for a, a free resource, I'll try and tell them what I know. <laughs> do you share those on a blog on your website? Because I, I know you have. I, I did put them in an, in, I did something about self-publishing recently, but I'd have to dig it out. Um, but people can just ask me. I'm on, on Twitter and Facebook right. and everywhere. And they can ask me there and I'll be able to tell them um, if I find out if I find that link, I'll I'll send it to you or share it with you on on Twitter. Sure. Excellent. Um, yeah. yeah, we can put it in the show notes. Um, so you you mentioned writing on the uh, in the corner of your couch. Do you listen to music <laughs> while you write? Because I am. Uh, this is like one of the bigger questions on the show is about the connection between you know music as an inspiration for writing. Uh, uh, selfishly, because I'm a musician as well <laughs> yeah down if I'm on the sofa I will it might be with the earphones in because of what's going on around me sure. I don't always have music to write to I did nearly all the time but sometimes lately I just like silence uh, I don't know what it is I went through a phase but there will always be points within a book where I will need music and I use the music because it helps the mood or the pace of what I'm writing mm. and the setting the atmosphere with the woodcutter there's a bit in the book where I describe him and I had uh, I was trying I was trying to visualize him I wanted him to be slightly different mm. and I'd heard behemoth's version of the cures of forest 
and they've got a video for it. I don't know whether you've seen it. No. And it's like these um, priest-garbed characters. You've got Nurgle walking through with this other one. Uh, I can't remember his name, but he, he's a guest vocalist. And they're going through these woods and then there's the darkness falls and the fire's going and he's got this wood sort of wreath around his neck. And I was thinking, that's my woodcutter. Well, the, the wood bit was anyway. So I, I just had that on repeat while I was in the wood with these woodcut with the woodcutter and that side of the story. It really helped the the atmosphere. And then for Reborn, um, and five turns I discovered Heilung and Wardruna and they do sort of pagan uh, folk music mm. it's more ritualistic than anything I'm actually going to see Heilung next week on Friday there's a awesome. festival and we can afford one day so we chose when they're, they're headlining and I always wanted to see them if you watch their videos they're in the They've got their faces painted. They use the old instruments. There's bones and skulls. They're more metal than a lot of metal bands. Yes. <laughs> they are great. And I've I've seen their live shows on video and people have said it's amazing. It's like a ritual. So we're going to go and see them. But you have that music on and there's a couple of tracks of theirs. And I can't for the life of me remember which ones. There's Wardruna Hel Helvengen. And there's another one, but it's the final sacrifice scene in Reborn. There were two tracks. It might be Anoana from Highland, I can't remember. But there were two specific tracks that I had on repeat as I was writing that scene. Mm. And that chokes me up because certain people, well, they always die, don't they, within my books. But a certain <laughs> person died in that one. and But it was a sacrificial act, her own, his or her own sacrifice, you I nearly gave yep, it away there it. <laughs> but that music that mood it it just really got me so I use music as an inspiration for the mood and the atmosphere the the setting that that's how I use it, it doesn't necessarily give me ideas mm -hmm. um but it will feed into to the pacing of it it takes me to that place where I want to be so with the the sort of pagan folk music it's it's that sense of otherworldliness, which is what Five Turns is in a way, because there is this element of dark fantasy and these old Norse elements in it. I made up a lot of ritual within that, but over the years I've done my family history and I keep telling people I'm descended from Vikings. And I am, I because we, we've got a Norman, there's certain names which are Norman and then they go through the records so you can trace them. Um, but like millions of others, so we're all related. And I got into reading more about Norse mythology and that's where I got into the Eddas and the poetry as well, because, and it really feels as though it's part of me. And I've done, I've solved three short stories this year. I think two, two have been published already and they are Norse themed playing on the, the legend and the one that's coming out at some point again is, is that sort of area. So it's my, my family history in a way. And my youngest, she bought me one of those DNA kits for mm. my birthday to get me tested. And I was saying it'd be a shame if we get the test and then find out that half our family tree is wrong. You know, <laughs> that, that we haven't got that Scandinavian element. So I was looking through the results and it said I was 97.9 British or something. But I've got all this Anglo-Saxon in there, Scottish, Welsh, Irish, English. 
And yes, there is the um, Scandinavian aspect in there, but they couldn't split those particular strands out because it was so far back and it was areas where they intermingled. But I have definitely got that link in there. So I am a Viking. <laughs> so Good that, that music speaks to me. You know, it's I'm mm. not... Uh, a religious person i'm agnostic i'm very open-minded about a lot of things um i sometimes i'm envious of people who have a faith because they've got this belief that keeps them going mm. and i'm there questioning everything but there's something about the past and those that older music those older writings that just feels part of me mm. it's it's really strange but yeah i love it i mean that that is just fantastic, and and I think that you just you just told me you're gonna write a a folk horror Norse book soon. <laughs> I, I might do actually. I do want to do a retelling of some of the myths, and I really like the character Hell, and I feel really sorry for. A few years ago, a couple of years ago, I got a poem in the HWA Poetry Showcase, yeah. and. I can't remember what it's called. This is my mind. But it was about Judas because I feel he got a bad deal. He was set up for a fall. He's been pilloried all, you know, down through history. But without him, God, you know, the whole Christian church could right. not exist because they needed that crucifixion. So I think he got a bad press. And then Hell, I was looking at her story and there's not much in the Eddas. People say all sorts of things about her. But it was basically Odin went to this um, seer and asked about various things and discovered, you know, heard that she would cause him trouble in the future. So effectively, he goes and finds her and throws her down to, to hell, which has got the same name or Niflheim, whatever you like to call it. So she actually didn't have any. I hadn't read of anything that she'd done wrong before then. Yes, she got a serpent and a wolf as a brother, mm. but none of them had done anything wrong. But because they might do, it's a bit like an early version of Minority Report. You know, they might do. <laughs> right, let's just chuck her down there and get her out of the way. But we'll make you queen of this land of mist and the dark. That'd be cool. <laughs> yeah, so I thought I'd love to do a story with her in it, whether it's a modern day retelling or setting it in a, you know, in a modern element or whatever. I don't know, but I'd love to do something with her because... She didn't ask for any of this. It's all been written, you know. You, you read about Ragnarok and that them all dying. It's all going to happen anyway. Mm. So why did she have to get shoved off down there? I think you just gave Life yourself a new fair. book. Life isn't fair. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a theme for a book, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I had uh, I had presented a draft. Uh, well, not a draft, but it was like the outline of a story to my to my book coach and developmental editor and. Uh, Zach, who's just amazing. And um, he told me, uh, you can't kill your main character, dude, like in the first book. And I said, why not? And he said, because she's the main character. And I said, dude, life's not always fair. And he goes, yeah, how are you going to write book two? I said, different main character. And he goes, yeah, yeah I can't let you do this. <laughs> I had a, I had a main character. She she survived, but she did in one of my books, and but she does sort of disappear in another but I, I do keep my certain characters alive because I do like writing about them but George R. Martin didn't did it didn't he with his books and quite a bit yeah so, so <laughs> it happens poor old Sean Bean but yeah there we go <laughs> yeah so that was that, that that's that's fun I, I think you just gave yourself I, I heard I heard at least uh, listeners you can weigh in on this I heard at least two good book ideas in there 
Um, I think you've got I'll have forgotten. Cut. I need to write them down. <laughs> oh, this is documented. We've got, you could listen back on this oh, yeah, now. Yeah, you'll be good yeah, to go. Um... Uh, and, and so we'll all be waiting patiently for those stories to come out in the next year, right? <laughs> um, well, hell, hell, hell is the next one on my radar. Okay. Once okay. I get this one out of my system, okay. I, I do want to do something with her. So nobody else do it. Otherwise, I'll right. be very annoyed. That's right. Copyrighted right now. <laughs> um, no, I don't mind. I'll, I'll just be in a competition. I'll just see. There you go. <laughs> well, good luck catching up to you. Cause I, like I said before <laughs> the show, like I was looking at your, your, your portfolio and I was like, oh my gosh, I had no idea you had written as much. It's amazing. Um, okay. So uh, do you have any events coming up soon for, to support the, um, the woodcutter? Uh, I think there's, a couple of interviews I've still got on my calendar. I had a few last week. We had a launch party. So it's it's sort of as and when I'm told, really, because Bridget's Gate, they actually do a um, they've got a publicist that they employ and Excellent. he finds um, opportunities for us. So I do get involved with that side of thing. We're not supposed to just go off and ask for right. ourselves. But I did the other day when I said, anybody want to talk to me? And you kindly came up because <laughs> years ago I wouldn't years ago only I'd say about two years ago I wouldn't do a podcast I would mm. I just want to write or sit in a corner and hide away right. and I I just couldn't see myself talking to people and then um Shane Douglas Keane who did Ink Heist he decided to do another podcast for a while and asked me on that as a co-presenter with him and Beverly Lee so I did that for about a year and that got me over a lot of this. So I thought, yeah, I'll, I'll start talking to people now. I've even started doing readings and showing my face. It's right. not out anywhere yet, but there will be, hopefully, at some point. But yeah, so it's, it's just moving there. <laughs> well, you know, we Americans, we eat up anyone reading something spooky in, an, in, an, in a traditional English accent. So it's going to be a hit. <laughs> it's going to be a hit. Um, well, it, well, the one I've recorded, if it's not accepted by the, the person that I'm going to send it to, I'll put it up on TikTok. There you go. There you go. And and you know what? I do want to take a moment and say kudos to Bridget's uh, Gate Press for having a publicist and handling some of the marketing. Hmm. Um, yeah. Because there are a lot of presses out there that that don't don't do as much. Um, so that's that's really cool yeah. that they are active with that. Um Okay, and then my last question, which is always the last question, because <laughs> I want to know what's inspiring you. I want to know what you're enjoying. Like, who are you reading these days? Like, what's an what's an author or a book that uh, you you'd love to talk about? Um, well, I've just finished not long ago this epic book. I love thick books. This is actually three in one. It's the Gormenghast trilogy by Melvin Peake, and I love Gormenghast. I read it years that's jack skellington just fallen down <laughs> but he's used I read to it that... he'll pick himself back up <laughs> yeah i read that years ago and if you want a lesson in atmosphere and how to make a building be such a character i would say gormenghast because it's just such a gray world it's stone mm -hmm. it's gray it's cold but it's not boring so i re i reread that recently i'm reading at the moment it's tom cox's villager and that's set in the countryside. It's a very rural um, story about different characters, brings in folklore, things like that. He is new to me, but I'd read Zoe Gilbert's 
uh, folklore and mischief acts recently. And that's they're a bit more. They're not folk horror. They're folklore. So if you like those, you'd like that one as well. But I love the rural side of it. So I'm reading that one. I've got a library book somewhere, Justin Cronin's The Ferryman. It's waiting to be read. And then on Kindle, I've got, I do have a whole other TBR pile, but these are the ones that are coming up to be read. <laughs> um, I've got Catherine McCarthy's Mosaic. That was out yes. yesterday. Yesterday, So yes. congratulations to Kath. She's been a good friend, good supporter. She's a very good writer. So anything she writes, I would highly recommend. I have also got Gabino Iglesias's The Devil Takes You Home on yes. my Kindle to read. I've got Coyote Songs and um, Zero Saints somewhere on the shelves, and I really like his work. I'm not one for extreme horror and blood and gore, but for some reason, I like Gabino's work. Um, <laughs> I know Coyote Songs, it was very poetical. I, I enjoyed that. And I've got his new one to try and I will always try and support him anyway, because he is one of those I've seen who is a genuine supporter yep. of other writers on Twitter. And for those who are searching for a little bit of a boost in marketing or raising the profile of their books, he does do his Friday reads where you yes. retweet his book and then he'll retweet yours. And he's got quite a reach. You just look at his figures thousands you know and it's going to yeah. grow because he's sort of hit the big yep. time or is you know he's on his way there now um he is always there boosting your morale and supporting other other writers so i've got those two on the go and i've got a whole heap of non-fiction as well sort mm. of about the 17th century which is an area that i'm writing and i had i've got another book out on submission um women of the witch Eye, and that's 16 it's set in 1649 uh, with women who are sort of related to the earlier Pendle witches, and there's a whole mystery going on there. Mm. So I'm trying to immerse myself in the in the history Very of cool. that time. So I've got a whole whole lot of nonfiction as well. I love it. I love it. Um, you know, I, I just wanted to touch on your point about Gabino Iglesias for a second. Mm. He is honestly, you know, one of the only people that recognized me outright at StokerCon that mm. I had met on. Um, on Twitter and hadn't met in Aww. person. I'm walking through the the exhibitor room there where they're selling books and someone yells my name, Lucas. Hey man, how you doing? And I turn around and it's him and I'm like, oh, hey. <laughs> and it caught me like off guard. And the first thing that that happened in my brain was he recognized me. Oh. <laughs> and like, I was like, it, it took me back for a second. I'm like, hey, how you doing? And he's like, good, man, how are you doing? And it was almost like he just like everything else was gone, cut everything else out. It was just me and him talking for a few minutes. Um, it was the first time we'd ever met face to face. And he was just overwhelmingly kind and super nice. Um, and the other person that I met like that beside, you know, Darcy Coates as well. She was just I've that poor girl. She she was exhausted. She was like, <laughs> She had no voice. She had been just carted around the US on this book tour and uh, and she was doing a really good job of keeping it all together despite this, the crazy schedule she was on. But the other person that I got to hang out with for a few minutes was Clay Chapman. And I felt terrible that I hadn't read Ghost Eaters yet because I had told him on Twitter like, hey Clay, cause we're, we're, we live where I'm, I live near where he's from and he writes a lot of his fiction about this area in Virginia. And so we had had conversations just about the location and stuff. And, um, and so I said, all right, dude, I'm going to read your book as soon as we get home from StokerCon. <laughs> but like, 
it was him and uh gabino and and darcy Coates. they were like the three people that um just really kind of took the time to to sit down yeah. and talk to me like oh yeah i want i want to give a shout out to grady hendrix here he came over to chillicon in scarborough i think it's about a year ago it was, it was supposed to be stokercon in the uk for the first time and i signed up for that in the days when i had a day job and then it kept getting put off and put off because of covid and so it became chillicon and I went up there and actually did a couple of panels, comfort zone again, but mm. Grady Hendrix was there and he did some amazing panels and amazing presentation. And then I remember I went up to get my book signed later, caught him in the hotel lobby and he was chatting away to me. Of course, I couldn't think of anything to say, but he in the inside of the book, it's up there somewhere. Instead of just his signature, it was this whole epic about coming to Scarborough and being careful of the vampires and all that. But I noticed everywhere he went, he would talk to people as though they mattered. And I thought that was really good. Sometimes you go to these conventions and you see people and yeah, I know writers are shy and introverted and I am, but I'm talking some here, but, um, <laughs> and half the time you're looking at people and you're trying to match them to profile pictures as well. And by the time you've decided they are who they are, right? <laughs> they've gone. <laughs> so you've missed that, but sometimes they can be in little groups and it, it feels unapproachable or no one's going to talk to you. But he was one who, who actually sort of mingled with everybody and talked and he was really good. So I'd give him a shout out as well. And oh, his books it. are great. I love his humor. I've got it on my TBR and I haven't picked picked it up yet and it's killing me because i write i'm right here i am writing a haunted house story oh how to tell a haunted house that was his <laughs> yeah. last one yeah have you I'm got like... his horror store have you seen the horror store one no and it's set up like an ikea catalog hold on no i haven't seen it yet <laughs> this is where we've interrupted we're book nerding it this is the way it's supposed to be so for the listeners, if you if you're not watching, if you're just listening, Sorry. we are. I was literally, just going through my collection. Yeah, of we're getting that. We're getting the real stuff off the top right. shelf. This is Horror Store by Grady Hendrix. I have Hendrix. not seen that. Uh, do you go to IKEA at all? Well, I've been there. I yeah, it's that's... just set up, and it's as you go. Hold on, I find a chat to start. Oh so he sets gosh. it up like. <laughs> I love that. That is that's horror store, and it's really good. I like that, and I think that's a haunted one. It's a haunted place. That is yeah, amazing. it's a furniture haunted furniture store, but set up like IKEA. That is, who published that? Which um, you... that is. I know I'm over here asking crazy questions. <laughs> All I've got is wardrobe storage solutions kitchens. Where's his copyright page? <laughs> See, guys, if you're watching or listening oh, to this, Quirk Books. Quirk Books. Quirk Books. Quirk Books does some great. Yeah. So that's, that's that one. Uh, this is, oh, yeah. Here we go. That's the one I got him to sign the Southern Book Club's oh, Guides yeah. of Slaying Vampires. Excellent. Oh, yeah. Here it was. It was Steph. Thank you for coming out. But the bad news is that Scarborough is crawling with vampires. So we'll probably all die together this weekend. Oh, well, Grady. <laughs> You know, I was there waiting, thinking he's just going to take a minute to sign it. And he was writing these things down. I thought, oh, yeah. That yeah. is so cool. There we go. Final girl support group. Got that. And there's had to sell a haunted house as well. Uh, 
So I've got a few Grady books. Yeah, I do like him because his, his humor is brilliant. But yeah, genuine writer, genuine person. Excellent. So there's my list for next year. So Grady, if you ever hear this, which you probably won't, but if you do, um, I'll be at StokerCon 2024 and I'll be looking for you. He'll be in his <laughs> linen suit. He's always very well presented in his linen suits. It's, yeah. Maybe we can find the vampires of San Diego together. <laughs> That'll be fun. Um, so Stephanie, uh, uh, we, we mentioned your website a little bit. We've mentioned, um, we've, we've mentioned your publications. Where's the best place to find you? We even talked about Facebook and Twitter, but is your oh, website the best place oh, to find you? Um, usually Twitter. I'm there okay. as L Stevie, E-L underscore Stevie. That's the Twitter name. I didn't think of it. They did. And it sounded very matadorish, so I kept it. <laughs> like a lot of people, I'm having this panic about where to go because of the whole Twitter thing. So I have a website, stephanieellis.org. As I say, Twitter is where you'll usually find me. I'm on Blue Sky as Steph Ellis. Uh, I've only recent joined, recently joined up to that. I'm on TikTok making videos where you don't see me, mm. but you might one day. Little poetry ones on there. Um, where are, Yes, I am on Facebook. I've just typed me. I'll be there. And I'm on Instagram as well. Perfect. But yeah, spread very thin. I don't know what to do anymore. <laughs> you know, I, I don't think you can really. It's one of those things where it's, yeah. you know, control the controllables. And, yeah. um, I mean, as much as, as people pine a, about Twitter's demise, I don't, I don't think it's going anywhere anytime soon. Yeah. And, and, and a lot of people have spread their net across the other platforms, threads mm. being one of the yeah. more emergent ones, blue sky, blue skies restrictions are keeping a lot of people from going there. So that's not yeah. great when you're trying to be discovered threads yeah. is catching some momentum, but it's still missing a lot of the functionality people want. Yeah. It's going to be this game back and forth. You know what I think is going to happen? just my two cents. I well, think then, people are just going to kind of naturally fall on a spot. It might still be X. I don't know, Twitter, whatever we want to call it yeah. these days. I'm still calling it Twitter. I'm not yeah. changing. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because uh, in the, we, we were talking earlier before we started recording about the talking scared episode with Stephen King mm -hmm. and Neil had mentioned uh, the host had mentioned um, uh, that uh, he refuses to call it X. He's going to continue to call it Twitter because well, he and Stephen King have come up with, <laughs> Like Stephen King's like, I'm calling it Twitter. And Neil's like, I'm calling it Twitter. Who am I to doubt Stephen King and, and Neil? So we'll just, we're going to go yeah. with Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, look, I don't think either of us um, planned to go to some of the places we went today, <laughs> but boy, am I glad we did. Because one of the things I love about podcasting is just this natural connection with people. Mm -hmm. Those people oftentimes are other readers and writers. It just makes it so great when you can connect with someone on a very human level. I feel like you are just the greatest. We had oh, such a fun conversation. I know the listeners and watchers are going to just fall in love with everything that you've mentioned. Go check out your books. My gosh, I wish I had known earlier how extensive your catalog is. Now I've got all of them on my TBR list that I haven't mm -hmm. touched yet. It's, it's just... I'm very happy that you were able to meet today. I'm so grateful that you were able to share so much of your experience and your wisdom with us. Thank you so much. 
Oh, thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed this. It's felt like a, a conversation over a cup of tea, minus the tea, though. So tea, <laughs> tea and biscuits next time. It will go longer. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Absolutely. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time out of your very busy day writing. And um, or not yeah. writing yet. Well, we were neither of us are today so far. <laughs> no. Right. Like we're both delaying the inevitable. Um, yeah. But uh, people, please go check out um, stephanieellis.org. It's it's a good central point to find Stephanie's work. This is where my eyes were open to the magnificent world she's built for everyone. If you want an escape, a little bit of dark, a whole lot of good, interesting, creative, different storytelling that just pulls you somewhere else, gets you completely out of your groove, go somewhere fun, you've got to check out um, Stephanie's books. So. Well, thank you. It's very kind. Yes, ma'am. Thank you so much. Thank you.